So it's rather delightful to come in this morning and really enter into this field of practice and I'd like to speak a little bit this morning about one of the fundamental areas in which we're invited to pay attention, which uh, supports the development and the unfoldment of, of our practice. And the realm of the body, the primary foundation of mindfulness, what it means for us to be embodied, consciously, fully, unconditionally embodied, is perhaps one of the fundamental explorations that we're engaged in here. This embodiment is a central aspect of what it means to be human. This human experience is very much centered around the reality of the body. And it is, of course, as I'm sure you're all quite aware, or maybe not all, but most of you, the, the, in the Buddha's teachings on the development of mindfulness and insight, the, the body is the first foundation of mindfulness. And spoken of and reflected on in considerable detail in the tradition and the teachings of the Buddha. And one of the features of the body that makes it both uh, important and useful to give attention to is that the body is here. The body is now. This physical form, this organic structure, this living, breathing sensitivity that we inhabit It doesn't go anywhere else. It's not in the past or in the future. It's not anywhere other than right here and right now. And by connecting with it, by referring to it, by developing and cultivating an intimate and kindly relationship to this body, we in fact develop an intimate and kindly relationship to our experience and to life itself. And we have a direct access to the immediacy of this moment. And through that immediacy, the opportunity to see deeply into the truth of what is here and now. And in this way, the body reflects the the very nature of what is most profound and what we can discover through our practice, in that immediacy, that here-ness, that now-ness. And we know, of course, that our minds can go other places and sometimes with remarkable enthusiasm and astonishing speed. And yet for all the activity of the mind, for all the places that it goes, and it does go a few places, doesn't it? We've noticed that, I'm sure, if we hadn't before we got here. coming back to the body, reconnecting with the body, cuts through that tendency of departure and gives us a framework for handling the reactivity that we encounter at times within the activity of of the mind. 
And so when we see thoughts and emotions arising in ways in which we're not able to easily be with, and we can't easily stay present in contact with those forms and expressions of our experience, the body provides the reference point and the territory in which we can reconnect and ground ourselves. We can come back to to both step out of the the trance or the intoxication or the reactivity of our minds, but also to come into something that moves a little more slowly. This is one of the wonderful things about the body. It just moves a little slowly. It's changing too. It's also unstable and ultimately unreliable as enable or not able of providing a permanent and fixed unchanging reference and yet the change that it exhibits is much slower than that of the mind and so there's this invitation to come into contact with to develop a relationship with the body to give attention to the body and Catherine spoke a couple of days ago about the giving attention to the breathing And this breathing, of course, takes place in the body, is expressed through the body, known through the body. So giving attention to the breathing is one fundamental aspect of knowing the body as it is, knowing what's happening in this body. And with the breath, and this is drawing very much from the the Satipatthana Sutta, the teachings on the full awareness of breathing, the four foundations of mindfulness. The full awareness of breathing is the first aspect within the body that's spoken of. And then the attention is given to the posture, to noticing the posture, seeing what's going on with this body and its movements. The movements, in fact, that locate us in one posture or another and through which we choose, which, which we move from one position to another. I think it's really interesting to reflect on this. You know, we know at some level, of course, we're either relatively still or moving all of the time. And in the stillness we can identify a posture, sitting, walking, standing or lying. It's pretty much one of those four. And in the movement we're moving between those postures or we're engaged in the simple extending or bending of our limbs and our joints. Everything comes down to that. It's either extending a joint or bending it back, flexing it, extending it. And it's it's very simple, the mechanics. That's pretty much what our body does. There's so many different movements we could make, so many different activities we can be engaged in. But from the reference point of the body, it's very simple. We have these postures, And we have these movements. And there's really just four postures and there's only two movements. It's either an extension or a flexion. And whether we're reaching to take the door, to pull it or to push it, whether we're lifting our leg and walking, it's a. of course we're combining at times many of those different movements into therefore much more complicated activities. But when we start to break it down and simplify it, we see it's, it's just this. And it can be known this way. And that's sometimes a really useful reference just to to know, first of all, the posture and then the movement. And it's like, okay, there's my hand. Oh, that's this bit is actually extending. 
And maybe as my arm is extending, my hand is flexing. My fingers are flexing. And that's all that's happening. It's just extension, flexion. And then once I've moved the door, this bit flexes that was extending, and this bit extends that it flexed as I let go of the handle. And it's very interesting to start to see it in that very simple way. It kind of frees it up from a lot of the baggage that we sometimes add to our experience of of the body and moving our bodies or doing things with our bodies, which are much often more conceptually oriented when we're, we are more conceptually oriented when we're relating to the body. And one of the things the body also teaches us about, and this is a slight diversion from where I thought I was going a moment ago, is that uh, things change because this body changes and uh, my body has changed to the extent that I can't actually see what's in front of me in this kind of light anymore. I did contemplate turning on some lights when I walked in, um, but I'm wondering if someone who's sitting towards the back would mind putting a couple of the lights here on. Is there someone who could do that? It'll be the bottom three knobs. Um... (coughs) Well, the bottom two knobs will probably do it. And let's see, maybe one more. That's actually really hard for... I, I'm fine with this one, actually, Virginia. I think my experience with that one is it's hard for people to see when there's a bright light. That's enough for me. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Bill. Of course, putting glasses on helps, but then I can't see you, which <laughs> seems to be the, a less helpful solution. So we look at the posture and the movements, and this is something we're invited to do throughout the entirety of the day, noticing what posture we're in, noticing the movements. And it's a really helpful way to bring a sense of continuity into practice. It's just that sense of tuning into what the body is doing at any given moment. It's primary posture and it's major movement, whatever that is. Even just now as we're talking, I'm aware of the, the, the flexion and extension that's going on in the jaw to produce talking, up and down, and tongue up and down. And just, just because I'm talking about that, I become aware of it. I've never really thought of my jaw in those terms before. And so there's a sense of immediacy that comes, a sense of coming back in, and a sense of actually the amount of activity, of life, of fullness that's happening. It's very simple, and yet really worthy of our attention. So we can also contemplate the body in terms of its parts, in terms of noticing that there's all these different aspects to the experience. It's not all the same. It's not just a unified experience, although sometimes we might feel or experience it in a unified way, which is fine and appropriate. But within that, we can also notice that there's all these different parts, all these different pieces. It's not just a single thing. And there's a way in which when we contemplate that, and again, this is part of what the Buddha invites us to do, to contemplate that it's not just this sort of surface that is relatively comfortable or okay to look at and be with, but it's the inside as well. It's kind of juicy and full of organs and um, fluids and 
solids and stuff going on, which if we come into contact with it, it's actually kind of not necessarily that intoxicating or entrancing or enticing. It's not about being disgusted with it or rejecting it, but just seeing, oh, it's an organic thing. And actually when we encounter the, the, the reality of organic things, we see that, oh, it's, it's, it's like this. If we could see inside the body right now, it would be, oh, it's like this. It's this thing pumping and this thing pulsing and this thing oozing or squirting or moving. And we can kind of tidy all that up in the way we relate to the body. Do the sort of the organic biological stuff apart from eating we do the rest of it sort of you know washing and toilet and all of that we kind of do it somewhere where we and other people don't really have to look too closely at what's going on and so again there's this invitation just to contemplate this is an organic human being organic life organs juicy liquid squishy stuff lots of it When we start to contemplate that, what also shows up somewhat is the sense of the elements, this body. We can contemplate this body in terms of elements. To notice the sense of of earth, of solidity, of firmness, of heaviness, of hardness, of density. And what that's like to be in contact with, how that affects us when we tune into that experience. So much as a, the first thing to do, perhaps, when we sit down to meditate. Just take a moment to feel one's bottom on the seat, the cushion, the bench, the mat, you know, on the earth, resting upon that which we rest upon, which holds us up. And that sense of contact, that's so grounding, that's so stabilizing for us. And that was what we call earth element. Being aware of the sense of, of movement also. We, know we might be sitting, but we're sort of moving a little bit. Backwards, forwards, sidewards. Or even the torso might be quite motionless in terms of its primary posture, but just the very breath moving in the body. There's a movement going on. And movement is understood as air element. And air, wind, we notice it moves. It moves. We've had some quite windy weather here in Devon and, in fact, throughout the UK in recent days. And that sense of movement, we notice the movement. And it's air element. And the breath, of course, it's literally the air in our body that's moving. But equally all the other movements, it's air element. There's fire, sense of temperature, heat, energy. And when we notice that, the sense of intentionality and brightness that we bring. So when we settle in the meditation, there's an intentionality requirement. It's got that that fire quality to it, that we need to be bright, we need to be engaged. It's not kind of just a sort of a casual undertaking we're engaged in here. This is something potentially challenging, but also profound and noble to engage in spiritual practice, to seek to awaken the heart and the mind, to liberate this human being in the very midst of life. And so that, that fire quality, we can both notice, notice it as temperature, but we see that from the, the more sort of, um, we could say, energetic point of view, it's, it's not just heat, 
but it's also engagement. It's transformative engagement because that's what fire does. Fire takes raw material and turns it into pure energy. It's a miracle in a sense if we really contemplate what's happening when fire's going on. Something that was solid, substantial, material, turns into something that's... First of all, it becomes different elements. It releases the energy that was bound into those elements in their formation. And as a result of releasing that energy, it, it's, it's transformed. And so in that way, it's a very clear metaphor for the, for the unbinding of the, the density, the solidification, the sort of entangledness of existence. And that quality of fire is often, is often used. In fact, um, this particular Buddha isn't of that kind, but the, uh, some of the Buddhas you get in Thailand, this is, this is a Sukhothai-style Buddha behind us, which is a, a very particular kind of form that comes from Thailand. Sukhothai was an ancient capital in Thailand. But there's another version where in the crown, instead of the shape of the sort of the, that you have here, it's more like a fire bursting through. That's what's being symbolized. It's a fire bursting through. So, and this is a, you know, a very classic traditional Theravadan image. It's, it's not some sort of exotic tantric thing, which have their place too, of course. But um, just that sense of what is that? That sense of a transformative fire. And so, so noticing, where's the fire? Where's the aliveness? It can be warmth. Equally, of course, noticing coolness. And My hands are a little cool right now. Absence of fire. We notice that too. That's part of what the body registers, what the body knows. Water element. Noticing water element. What's water element? And sometimes it's, we think of it often as liquidity or fluidity, but it, that's actually air element in terms of the way the Buddha's taught and understood the body and the experience. Water element he spoke of as cohesion. Something to notice, cohesion. And I remember when I first encountered that, thinking, that's a bit strange. What's water got to do with cohesion? It sort of makes puddles and splatters about. But when you think about it, if you add water to dust, you get mud or clay, in fact. If you add it to flour, you get dough. If you take the water away from the structure, it's just a heap of dust. Water coheres. It's that kind of. It's got that quality of binding, of connecting, of engaging. And so, elementally, feeling the coherence of our experience—that's what actually allows it to be fluid—is that it's coherent. So, of course, there is a relationship between water and fluidity, and movement. Water has that non-solidness to it. But that's also, there's a sort of a, co- a fluid coherence. So again, we notice, we notice experience moving and we talk about the movement of experience, both bodily and equally in terms of mind. But here just noticing what that's like, that sense of coherence. The body is gathered, it's located, it's not dissipated. And so we can actually sense where it's, it kind of has soft boundaries, the body. They're not as hard or as fixed as we sometimes conceive or imagine the images we hold. But at the same time, there is a certain coherence to this. It coheres. It doesn't fall apart as such. 
And the last of the elements we can notice is the element of space. And we notice that as places of openness, of absence, of a sense of both what's around us and within us. This body, it's full of holes. There's a hole going right through the middle, things going through it, which we call food on the way in and something else on the way out. But there's a big hole, pipe, it's long and quite wiggly. But it's, it's a hole through the middle of what we are in terms of a structure. And of course, within the lungs, within the chest cavity, within the abdomen, there's, there's lots of space. And in fact, everywhere, at an elemental, at an you know, atomic level, there's space. And in fact, within the very musculature, there's room for it to move. Or else it couldn't, internally, as well as the space around it. But there's room in there. And so we can start to notice, again, that quality. So paying attention to body, body's an idea, it's a concept in one sense. When we start to break it down, what we notice is, as a direct experience, there's the sense of the posture and the movements, as I said. And then when we look at the posture and the movements, oh, they're actually constructed out of different elemental aspects. We can notice, oh, this posture has a quite a solid sense of of earthiness, feet on the ground, sorry, bottom on the ground, that's sort of earth, and then this upright quality, that's actually more the fire element because it's intentional. You take away the intentionality from the posture, bottom isn't going to go anywhere. It'll just stay sitting on the earth, but the torso will just slump or fall over if we go completely unintentional here. So we say, okay, that's being expressed there. And then there's, we could say, a quality of of fluidity in the sense of the relaxation, of, of not holding the body tight. There's a fluidity in the body that actually is drawn downwards by gravity. That's part of how gravity affects us, is there's a fluidity that draws the body down, that allows the body to soften, to open, when we're not holding, when we're not tight, not rigid. And so, again there, see how those, those are kind of primary elements In the sitting posture, it's really important that there's space. Space is expressed a lot in the sitting, both through the the abdomen and the torso, that if we compress this, it really isn't helpful. And so we intend consciously to sit in such a way as supports the space. And the abdomen and the torso allows the organs to do what they need to do. So again, all this is kind of, I'm imagining, quite familiar to you in terms of, of course, we know it's a good idea to sit up relatively straight. But just recognizing how that relates then to the body and specifically to the, the elemental dimension that we can tune into. It's like, oh, okay, so here's space. This is space element. It's needed here. And of course, there's a lot of space in the breathing process, space required for the breathing process. And that. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. That's that, that central elements of this posture. Another element of the posture and the uh, is that, that sense of sense of cohesion. We're sort of contained a little bit. You know, we folded the legs in or kneeling on them, putting the hands somewhere, kind of leaving them. There's a certain sense of the body becoming more unified as we do that. It's much less a sense of cohesion, of coherence when we're kind of moving or restless or active. And there's something really helpful about that for the mind. And so looking at looking at the posture postures of the body, we can use them 
we can support them. And again, in the uh, talk a couple of mornings ago, I think Catherine was speaking some about the way in which the breath affects the body. Like breathing is the, the kaya sankara, the, the conditioner of the body. And the way we notice that when we breathe in certain ways, when we're conscious with the breathing, it affects the body, it allows it to open. So the body is actually the citta sankara. The body, kaya, is what conditions the mind heart, the heart mind, citta. That basic um, and very primary element of our experience that we, that we, through which we know and feel and respond. That isn't so sort of absolutely separated in, in, in Dharma teachings into sort of mind, thought, intellectual activity and heart, feeling, emotional activity. It's, it's heart, mind, chitta. And so the body conditions the mind. So this is one of the reasons we're invited to give a lot of attention to body. Because if we're interested in understanding our mind and in freeing our mind, our heart mind, we need to understand how it's being conditioned. And it's being conditioned primarily by the body. You know, this is, again, it's not news to us necessarily. You know, when we don't feel well, if we're ill, what happens to the mind? If we're not taking care of it, it's very easy to feel a bit contracted or sort of depressed or just miserable. You know, we don't like feeling ill. Or feeling unwell or unpleasantness in the body. And so if we look at what we're doing intentionally here, as well as just meeting the experience, opening to the experience of what's happening, we're also learning in what ways can we non-coercively or non-manipulatively engage in a creative way that supports the well-being of this living system, that allows it to open. Because in opening and relaxing and being at ease, we're more able to see deeply what is true we're more able to touch into the, cap- the capacity of the heart and mind for, for deep stillness and calm and equally for, for very tender and sensitive kindness and compassion and ultimately equally joy the Brahma Vihara qualities also come from very much being in our bodies connected with this experience and opening into this experience. So one of the reasons that the the Buddha encourages us to pay attention to all the postures and to use them all as meditative practices is that this really allows us to skillfully handle the conditioning that's playing out through the body and through the mind. And yet what we can see is, and I find this fascinating, we can't with our mind make our mind be different. I don't know if you've tried. Lots of people do in meditation. I certainly have. We think that's what we're doing in meditation. We're trying to get our mind to be different by using our mind. Like telling it to be quiet. Have you noticed that that doesn't really work? Or telling it to brighten up or be relaxed. Or you know, if the mind is agitated and you say to it, relax, it doesn't really do it. But if you actually engage with the body in such a way as to support the qualities that are needed, it happens. And this is fascinating. And one can actually work with it, you know. That's why we say if you're feeling dull and drowsy and the mind's sort of heavy, give attention to the upright quality in the body. Because by making the body upright, it really helps the mind to be upright. 
to be bright, to engage with that quality that's needed. That's more intentionality and more vitality. So, you know, I often give the instruction on group retreats for people when they're drowsy, you know, that if you, if you can't easily stay awake in the sitting meditation and you've tried opening the eyes or just sitting up a bit straight or giving a bit more attention to the in-breath, all of which are helpful and all of which are actually bodily expressions because it supports the mind, that you can put your arms up in the air. And it's really interesting. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this practice. I've never seen a Buddha Rupa where the Buddha's doing this. But it's incredibly useful. So I invite you to try it just now. You don't have to, but notice what it's like to put your arms up in the air. I find it helpful that the elbows are above the shoulders, but they don't have to be. But what I notice that does, it engages the shoulder muscles in a really useful way. Now, having done this, one no longer needs to worry about it being looking a bit silly because everyone's done it, so... You know, if we do it, we know what's going on. Almost anything can happen in meditation, and often any number of unexpected things do. So there are almost no guarantees as to what's going to happen next, but I will guarantee for you, you will not fall asleep while you're holding your arms in the air. It's never happened. And what I notice is if one does it, and you don't have to, but if you just go a little bit beyond the point where it's just easy, without making it into some kind of battle against your body. So the shoulders have to really work a little bit. And then when you've done that, just letting the arms come down slowly, having your attention in your shoulders and maybe in your hands as well. And just notice what you notice in your body, first of all, as a result of having done that. And it may be that you don't notice much at all. But what I notice is that it really opens up the torso and it naturally brings a greater sense of brightness and clarity to the mind, of energy. So energetically, you're engaging something intentional. And doing so when it's a little bit of an effort and just beyond the comfort zone actually requires a certain sort of vitality of us. And it brightens the mind directly. But it also helps release tension that we hold in the shoulders and around the neck because it's using those muscles, it's engaging them. And if we engage them until they're tired... So we don't just put them down the moment it's a little work, but we work a little bit there. That engagement of making them work, when you stop intentionally engaging them, they're much more able to release than by just saying, my shoulders are tight, I want them to relax. Can you relax now, please? The mind can't do that to the body. But it can tell the body to do this, and then the body actually changes, and the mind likewise. So it's a very simple expression of that particular of that particular dynamic, how we can intentionally do something with the body in order to affect the mind. Now, it's important when we're engaging in this way that it's not coming out of a place of, I don't like how my mind is, it's a bit dull, and I, sort of, I've got aversion to dullness, because dullness isn't that much fun, unless, you, unless it's bedtime, in which case it's actually quite nice. Um, and that. But it's more out of a sense of, what's possible? What, what, could, what could be possible here? in terms of my practice. And that's, a, you know, in a way, a very immediate expression of the, the fundamental question of practice, which was the Buddha's question. I think I might have mentioned on the opening line, that sense of what is possible for a human being beyond what we already know or have access to. What more is possible? Because so much is possible that we haven't necessarily yet fully understood or accessed or embodied. 
So there's the sense of using the postures. And, you know, the primary framework that's set up for us in, um, in retreats for many of us is the idea of sitting and walking, sitting and walking. And that's kind of the thing that gets taught, though actually, you know, one of the most um, sort of broadly um, practiced and taught and um, used traditions coming from the teachings of uh, S.N. Goenka, Goenkaji, who very sadly died uh, just a few weeks ago, but had done an amazing amount for transmitting the, the Dharma into the, into the world in a, um, a sort of a non-monastic form. And, that, and it's just sitting, as any of you who've done that form will know. I remember sitting with Goenkaji in India sort of a long, long time ago. But it's just sitting. It's only sitting. No other posture is used as formal practice. And, you know, it's great. Get a lot of sitting done. But this, I find a sense of, oh, actually, it's useful to do some walking. And there's something that's really helpful. And most teachers in the West, I think, teach sitting and walking. And I remember when I was in my early practice and I was in India, coming across a little book that said, and I read it, and I was a little surprised because it didn't quite make sense to what I thought. It said, actually, if you do lots of sitting you'll get very calm and quiet and your concentration will develop. And if you do walking meditation, your insight will deepen. And it's very interesting. Because we can sometimes let the walking go as a little bit sort of it's not the real thing. You don't have pictures or you don't have images at the front of the meditation or the Buddha sort of walking, striding back and forth. It's not what they, you know, put on all those advertisements now for sort of sort of uh, tropical cruises or sort of um, peace-inducing bank mortgages where you see people sitting in meditation cross-legged. You know, the image of sitting meditation has penetrated our culture very powerfully in the last 10 years. And it's embodying something about calm. Calm is really good. It's really important. And it's not actually the whole thing. And so... Of course, insight comes in sitting, and well, maybe many of us have had the experience of real understanding happening in the sitting. But to a very significant degree, insight that happens in any, whether sitting or elsewhere, isn't coming just out of what's happening then, but out of the whole process of our practice. And sitting and walking, engaging in the walking form, brings much more opportunity for raw material that allows us to see the truth of things. And I'm really clear for myself that not only have there been incredible insights that have come in the sitting, sorry, in the walking meditation, equally in the sitting, but here, in a way, you've probably guessed this is a plug for walking meditation, um, not just that, but in the walking. But what I also noticed is that having done the walking, the sitting meditation is different. It really is. And here in England, and here in England in November, it's really easy to feel like it's cold and it's wet and it's kind of miserable. You know, I'll just do more sitting and do some study or something in between or just take a little break, have a cup of tea and then go back to the sitting. So I really want to encourage and commend you to really to use, to engage in walking meditation. You don't have to go outside if it feels kind of unpleasant out there, but there's also something quite exhilarating about putting on a proper raincoat and there's wellies that you can borrow and just being out in the elements. It's not about samadhi when it's rain and wet and wind and cold, but it's very much about vitality and aliveness and also something about dedication, not being, so to speak, blown off our path 
by a little weather. And so again, the walking meditation, because it's active, because there's movement involved, because we're tracking movement more than tracking stillness, just as a primary sense of the body, there's something about how that actually provides support for the mind's capacity to understand things. It's because we're seeing more things moving. The, you know, one of the fundamental truths of the body is change. We see this. If we look at this body, it's changing. There's no ultimate satisfaction to be found in this body. It's slowly breaking down, wearing out, and being less able to do all the things it used to be able to do. That's what it does. It's ultimately not who we are. It's not me. It's not mine. And yet what we are is embedded in this, is revealed through this, is accessed and is worked with through the medium of body most usefully for us much of the time. So we can learn to let go of our identification with body and yet at the same time to really see that this body offers us a gateway into the deepest experience that the human being can have. And it offers us a way to work with patterns that aren't supportive, that aren't skillful. And so there's a, there's a kind of a development or a maturing in our capacity that takes place over time. Initially we need to learn to not be messing with our experience, not trying to fix it or manipulate it or make it somehow permanently comfortable, pleasing and flattering to us. But as we get that more clearly and deeply, then of course we are involved in the seeing of what supports the arising of the wholesome and what allows the dissolving or the dropping away of the unwholesome patterns of reactivity. And this is the whole territory of what the Buddha called wise effort, skillful effort, in terms of one of the factors of the the Noble Eightfold Path. Effort is all about supporting the arising of the wholesome and understanding what allows that which is unskillful and unwholesome to drop away. Seeing that we can't make it happen as an act of will, but that we can support that which supports the wholesome. And posture and body is a primary, primary avenue for that, as I was saying. So another posture that's not taught that often at all, having started when I said about sitting and then there's walking, which we're all quite familiar with, I imagine, then standing meditation. And standing, I find, again, a remarkably beneficial practice as a posture. It's got an incredible amount of earth element and fire element in it. It's very intentional because your whole body is upright. And if there wasn't intention operating, it would fall all the way to the ground. Partly because of that, it helps us to keep that intention quite steady engagement quite steady and standing meditation is a really helpful option if we're dealing with a lot of physical discomfort that we can't seem to find steadiness in the body with the sitting posture or if we're dealing a lot of drowsy with a lot of drowsiness again sometimes standing up really helps though if you're very drowsy keep your eyes open because it's never happened to me but it has been reported on one or two occasions that someone managed to fall asleep while standing up um I can, if you're interested in standing meditation, if you unlock your knees when you're standing, that will ensure you don't fall asleep. But if you lock them up, the body can kind of get rigid in the lower half and stop needing intentionality. 
And if that intentionality isn't required, then sleep is possible. But so long as intentionality is required, and you just soften behind the knees in standing. You can try this at the beginning of a walking period, even just for a few minutes. If you soften behind the knees, as if you were to bend your knees, but you don't actually bend them. You just soften. And then it's dynamic, rather than so the muscles are engaged in the posture, rather than being locked by slightly kind of tipping forward over the articulation of the knees and locking onto the, the kneecaps. So standing meditation is really helpful, really useful, as a way of dealing with or skillfully working with certain patterns. One of the places where it's really helpful is when we have a lot of aversion also, when there's strong aversion. It's got this uprising, fiery energy to it that tends to spin off into reactivity. And standing meditation embodies that energetic quality very fully. And so it gives it a place to be held, expressed, experienced, and ultimately transformed through the body. It doesn't need to go into the mind so much. And so you see the body, sorry, you see the Buddha standing meditation sometimes, sometimes with his palm like this. It's called the fearless mudra. It's a, it's a non-aggressive position, but it's very strong. It's the soft part of the hand, but it's not aggressive. And yet, if you need to say no or stop, this is the place you can do it from. And what I notice when I do this and just engage the hand, I think that Buddha probably does it right. He's right-handed, I'm guessing. It's often seen this way. This way, but he's often standing, and it engages the lower back. So there's, there's a very strong quality, but it it actually it's like it channels or engages the that vital life energy that expresses as anger or as um, sort of aggressive reactivity into a wholesome framework, because that energy is actually trying to protect us. That's what it's for. That's why it's there, and it gets distorted through the field of ego and the distortion, the blindness of identification with self or with other, as in they're the threat, I'm the, the victim, or whatever it is. And yet someone's just embodying the energy, or just standing up and feeling it. So if you're interested in the posture, make your hand as if it was going to do karate. So it's actually quite intentional. You, you firm up through the soft central part like this, and then just place it wherever it is, somewhere here. It's a very interesting. Abhaya. It's the Abhaya Mudra. Abhaya is fearless. And uh, it's very interesting how it can be useful to engage that energy. And so again, one isn't trying to stop or get rid of something, but finding a way to handle it skillfully. And whether, whether feeling an angry, aggressive energy coming towards one, or a feeling arising within one, Sometimes this posture can be really useful and helpful. And with standing meditation, the whole body is expressing that upright quality. So it's actually more physically demanding in some ways than sitting or walking. It's harder to sustain in a certain way. And yet it's really helpful. So again, I would encourage you to explore and see if it might be useful for you. If it's not something you're familiar with. If you don't know, and it can be just a few minutes at the beginning of a standing, uh, sorry, at the beginning of a walking or during a walking or at the end of a walking period, or you can also do standing meditation in the hall here. And sometimes, if you want to just give your body a different posture for a little while, but you don't really want to move too much, you just very quietly stand up. It's not in breach of the guidelines of being in the hall, it's not like you're leaving or entering, 
you can just quietly, mindfully stand up and stand there for a while. And then if you wish, after a while of standing, sit down again. And so it allows a very a, a quality of sustaining in practice where sometimes it's not easy for us to sustain the process of getting up and moving out and going into the, the walking meditation. But all of that again, what it's also doing is by making a formal practice within one of the primary postures, it's helping us to kind of enter that more deeply and fully when we encounter it standing at in the queue going into lunch. It's because we've learned, oh, this is what you do standing. You come in like this, you relax. As much as there's all that upright quality, there's also the invitation to relax the body, the torso, as in the sitting, and just let the shoulders drop. I like to let the arms hang by the sides, let gravity have them. And that. And so in terms of filling the day, because what is going to be most transformative for most of us in our practice is the degree to which we're able to fill the day with intentional practice. What happens in those moments is less important than the fact that we're there for them. Not just in the sitting, not just in the walking, not just in the formal meditation, but through the day. Now, this is only day three for a number of you, so you know it's also okay to go gently with the filling of that. But it's also useful to have it there as one's clear intention. And the body is the reference for that so much. So standing meditation, really helpful. Primary posture in the hall, outside, formally, for a period of time, 5, 10, 15 minutes. I had a student once, he stood out there for 7 hours. After Up to 5 hours I wasn't too worried. After 6 I was starting to get a little concerned. But he just stood there. It was amazing. Very profound experience took place for him. I won't say much more about it. He was fine, though. I did go and check on him after about 6.5 hours and make sure he was fine. Um, and he had done quite a bit of standing practice before. But... Uh, it's interesting what the body can settle into sometimes. I'm not saying that's what you're supposed to do, or that it's better to do longer than shorter, but just sometimes we find something in the body that just speaks to us. Lying meditation also I want to name as the other, the fourth primary posture that the Buddha spoke about. The Buddha really only used lying meditation when he was ill or had some um, kind of injury, sort of the classic sort of thing that actually speaks to me a lot about the compassion of the Buddha also for himself as well as others. At one point there's a, um, a lovely <coughs> stanza where, where the Buddha's been teaching and it's approaching midnight and there's all the monks and the nuns and the practitioners gathered around really taking in these beautiful teachings that he's offering them. And then he, he turns to Ananda and he says, Ananda, my back is sore. But these monks and nuns, they are bright, they're enthusiastic. <coughs> they are you know, thirsty for the Dharma. So he says, Ananda, you keep teaching them. I'm going to lie down. And I just love the sense of that. It's like, yeah, he doesn't have to say, I'm going to keep sitting here and teaching them because I'm the Buddha. And I, I'm sure he could have done it if it was a life or death issue. <coughs> but lying down. And the Buddha classically taught and can be seen in lying meditation, lying on his right side with his one leg on top of the other, sort of like that. And with his hand like this, hand on the head, arm out. Now the Buddha has got rather different shoulders than I have, at least in the images. His arm just goes straight up like that. So it makes a relatively comfortable thing. Now, I imagine if your shoulders are really open, you could do that. But mine aren't, at least not to that degree. Um, 
But even if you could, it seems to me, from my experience of it, it's a relatively uncomfortable posture, so one doesn't fall asleep in it. Though the Buddha actually, apparently, well, I don't, but the, the Buddha actually would sleep in that posture. And he didn't want to sleep for too long, so maybe that's part of how he ensured he woke up after four hours. Um, but that lying meditation, one can explore that a little bit if you wish. Again, it's lying on the right-hand side, traditionally, and that means that the lungs fall away from the heart, so it's got less pressure on it. But you can try the other side too. I find they're equally uh, uncomfortable. Um, but lying meditation also, sometimes when we want to rest, maybe in the day or even in the evening, to make it a formal practice a little bit. So if you want to practice in a way in which the body is completely relaxed, having the knees bent, feet flat on the ground, the torso and the lower back then isn't under pressure. And if you want to stay awake doing lying meditation, if you need to for your body, and sometimes there are injuries, sometimes there are vulnerabilities, sometimes we just the physical body is completely exhausted. And we could go sit in a comfortable chair, that's an option, do a very sort of supported meditation in that way, if we've been practicing long hours. Or sometimes lying on one's back on a firm surface, knees bent, and placing the hand like this, as I showed you, but with the arm on the ground, this lower part of the arm is on the ground, and the hand is like this, parallel to the body. So I, for, for, for lying meditation, turning the hand in, it's not the same mudra, but it's still very intentional. So the body is on the ground here, the upper arm is on the ground, and then the elbow is 90 degrees, the, up, the lower arm is just pointing straight up. And that keeps you awake because it's intentional. So the intentionality is involved, but there's no musculature hardly at all involved because the weight is all here on the ground. And if you fall asleep, your hand will move and wake you up. So it's really useful to sustain the practice when even the body is just about out of juice and yet you still have the inspiration to keep going. Now, of course, when it comes to sleeping, then it's fine to fall asleep and it's actually quite useful Part of taking care of our body is taking care of sleep, taking care of exercise, taking care of diet. These things we do intentionally are part of what condition the body, affect the body, together with breathing and being conscious in our breathing, food we take in and water, of course, liquid, exercise and rest are all needed. And that, in a way, comes from our intentionality. It doesn't happen without some intentionality. And that conditions the body. And the body conditions the mind. When the body is well, the mind is happy so much more easily. And the mind is present so much more easily. So last thing I just want to say with lying meditation, one of the instructions from one of my teachers, which I used to always enjoy, though sometimes a little struggle with, was in going to sleep. You know, just to check that we're really tired. Sometimes we go to sleep because we think it's time to go to sleep. It's okay. But sometimes we can actually just practice lying on the mattress, flat on the back, don't need to have your arm up, but just noticing the breathing and just making that a part of the practice too. Okay, so as we drift off, we're just with the breath and the body lying. And as this teacher would say, now see if you can notice whether you fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath. And I find it, again, a delightful instruction, although it could possibly keep one awake, which might be annoying if it's getting late. But um, just that sense of that interest, even to this phase, that inclusion, even of this part of my day. And by doing that, 
there's a much fuller sense of practice that probably you, again, many of you have that sense of when we fold our legs up and park ourselves on a cushion or sit in the chair and put our feet on the ground and back upright, that it's almost like the body knows what we're doing now. This is meditation. And the mind just tunes into that. And if you establish that, that kind of through doing it again and again for the other postures, for the sitting, and then for the standing and the walking and the lying. So whenever we're in that posture, there's that reference point of, oh, that's what this means. There's this quality of presence, of embodiment, of awareness in the body, in the present, that becomes available. That, therefore, it's like we start to establish or generate a, a gravitational pull into this mindfulness of body, awareness of body. And this is, you know, this is essential for all the forms of practice we might engage in. Even if one is doing um, loving kindness, our Brahma Vihara practice, you know, it's really useful to be in the body. Sometimes it can be taught we're just, you know, just all sort of extending heartful kindness radiating throughout the world or to all these beings or ourselves even, and it can become a little bit. Um, unconnected to the body and yet something really useful about consciously being in one's body practicing metta so we feel the body as we extend a sense of loving kindness we notice what it's like here and likewise of course in samatha practice the the body is the primary reference for for feeling the energetic unification of of consciousness of citta and in fact kaya that the, the mind and body become energetically unified through the the gathering, through the collecting, through the focusing. And that's the reference point, both for some of the the absorption factors or jhana factors that we experience, but equally for the the fulfilling of that that particular trajectory. So again, body is central in all of this. And through this body we can come to know and realize for ourselves what it is that can be known by a human being, what it is that can be known in this human life that is liberating. As the the Buddha said himself, within this fathom-long body, this six-foot, 180-centimeter Within this fathom-long body, all of the Dharma is revealed. Suffering and its cause. The end of suffering. Freedom. And the path thereto. So please continue in your practice here for your own well-being and for, for the welfare of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.